0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovic and Dr. Sammy Steele.
1: Welcome Conscious Clinician listeners today we're here to talk about the stages of behavior change and how this applies to your patient care. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. Tonight, I wanted to talk to you about a topic that I think is really close to both of our hearts, which is this issue of non-compliance with our patients. That's kind of a dirty word with the both of us. Yeah. I think it's important to deconstruct this idea of non-compliance because it's so prevalent in our profession. We learn it from the time that we're brand new baby PTs in school. We learn it all through our clinical rotations. We get that idea reinforced that if a patient is non-compliant, then they're somehow at fault for not improving or that there's something wrong with them. There's just something that doesn't sit right with me about that.
0: Absolutely. You got me triggered when you said non compliance. I just think compliance is a terrible word because it separates you from the relationship and it creates this hierarchy once again between patient and provider. And there have been times where I have really fallen into the compliance trap personally. I can remember. So many times where I would be talking with a patient, we'd go through their evaluation and I would explain to them all about the urge suppression technique and they would come back the next session and be like, I didn't do it or it didn't work. And it turns out they had missed like the whole point of what we were trying to do and they didn't get it or they didn't do it. And then I had this attitude of why not? Like. How come you didn't do it? Which I think is hard to come back from as a patient. I don't think I ever attacked my patients. I hope I haven't. But you still want to know like, hey, what happened? How come you didn't get around to it this week? they always feel guilty and bad. And that's a valid question to ask. But what I usually found as I dug deeper into whatever it was they didn't do, whatever intervention we had talked about or lifestyle change, that oftentimes they weren't quite ready for that type of change. Excluding something really happening in their family, which is life, right? Sometimes there are circumstances that get in the way. I think you can distinguish the spectrum of clients. There's people who get what you're talking about who honestly faced some real life challenges in executing it well. And I think you can tell those people because they're engaging in that dialogue pretty freely with you. The ones who I found we weren't quite clicking. Are the patient who you're like pulling teeth, trying to get them to answer why they didn't do something, or they seem really ambivalent about it? And you're just like, okay, so what are we doing here then? If you're not into this, what's going on? And that was a hard space to be in as a PT for a while because I knew there had to be something else. Besides just giving people the best advice. But the only thing I knew how to do was to try to figure out the best advice and ask them a lot of questions about themselves and then tell them how they could do something, which I thought for a little while was like the point of motivational interviewing. By the way, I thought that if you just ask them like all the questions, then you could create the answer that they can't refuse. I remember learning about the stages of behavior change and how mind-blowing that was, but also in the same vein, how it was hard to implement. It felt like it took me a while to get to hear the things that people were saying and to identify it with a specific stage of behavior change. The stages of behavior
1: change are so incredibly useful to what we do, but I think it does not get taught well in schools. <laughs> I remember learning about it and thinking, okay, I've, I've memorized these stages, great, let's move on. I'm going to take my test and, and never think about this again. And I recall when you and I were in mentoring together and you would ask me what stage of behavior change that the patient was in, I was having to dust off these stages from the back of my mind and thinking, why is she asking me that? And I think what the missing link was, was that I hadn't been taught to listen for the right language, right? So I didn't really know what it would look like in a patient, what they would say, how they would present, what it would mean for them to be in that stage. I just memorized the stage and the definitions, and it didn't have a lot of clinical relevance to me. And so I hope that some examples that we talk about tonight might become useful in a way that it never had before.
0: Why don't we go over a brief overview of what the stages are with some examples of what people might say in each stage of behavior change. For anyone who is unfamiliar with this, we will link information to the trans-theoretical model so you can read up more on it. We'll just give a brief overview and more so focus on how a person might present in each of these stages. The first stage is pre-contemplation, and in this stage, people do not intend to take action. They don't know quite yet what it is that they need to do. They might be aware of an issue, like they know that they have low back pain, they know that they have pelvic pain, or that they have urine leakage. But this is the person who comes into the office, and most often on the evaluation, you ask what brings them in, and they're like, my doctor referred me. And we've all heard that, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the moment they say that, my heart would just drop a little bit because I innately knew this is going to be a hard one. And understanding that person is in pre-contemplation helps me be compassionate towards them and myself. Because I know they don't quite yet understand the scope of this problem. And they don't understand how they might be able to influence the problem. So if someone comes in in pre-contemplation and I bust through my PTEval subjective history, get to the end and give them a list of even two to three things that they need to do, there is a pretty good likelihood that they don't follow through with it, because they're not quite ready, they're not quite aware of what this is for. And you might notice that they're a little bit resistant throughout the evaluation. How I like to combat this, how I like to tease this out further is to ask people, what do you know about, insert their condition? What do you know about urine incontinence? What do you know about dyspareunia? What do you know about, insert the diagnosis? And then I start to listen to what they're bringing to the table, not to correct them, but to understand where our conversation needs to go. Because somebody who comes in, who answers that question and says, I was reading and it sounds like urine leakage is due to weak pelvic floor muscles and I'm not really sure how to do Kegels. That person is in a different Stage of behavior change. The person who's in pre contemplation will just tell you, I don't know a lot about this. And at that point, I now have an entry to say, Would you like to talk about it more? And then I can shape the conversation with an overview of what that condition is, how pelvic PT fits into that, and start to give them the roadmap, the trail map that we referenced in episode two.
1: Monica, one of the things that I really like about your approach here too is the asking permission. Is it okay if we talk about blah? Because I think so often we dive into this tirade about this is your problem and this is what you need to do about it, and it's all so directive. I think sometimes if we get somebody who's in that pre contemplation stage and they're a little bit resistant, you sitting there and kind of wagging your finger at them and telling them what to do can create more resistance and more of this pushback. And I think that it's very disarming when a provider says, is it okay if we talk about this? Or what do you want to know about this? And I think that kind of puts people in a different mindset where they can be receptive to what you're saying and not push back against it. That was something that I also took away from our time talking about this is that We really need to assess for, first of all, where are they even starting from? What is their base level of knowledge? And then open the
0: conversation with their permission. Absolutely. And I've seen it break down those barriers time and again. I've never had someone say back to me, no, I don't want to talk about the condition I came in for. They might not be ready to make massive lifestyle changes, or make all of the changes at once, yet everybody wants to know something. It's like piquing your curiosity rather than saying, hey, here's what you have to do now. I found that question to be just alone, transformational in how I interact with people for the rest of my exam. I think
1: it's really easy to, as a physical therapist, we get very tied up in the physicality of what we do. We are so ready to jump into exercise and intervention and to fix the thing that they're coming in for. I think where a lot of us get into trouble is with these patients who come in and they're in pre-contemplation. They don't have their own inherent understanding or motivation to solve their problem yet. And we have this desire to throw an intervention at them right away. And part of that, I think, is the pressure of billing. A lot of us want to be able to say that we gave them X, Y, and Z as an intervention on day one, when they're maybe not ready to hear it. It's important to take a step back with some of these patients and go, patient education and therapeutic activity is an intervention, and we don't necessarily have to be giving those Kegels on day one, if they have no idea what their pelvic floor is, how it could be related to their incontinence, how they might build these Kegel exercises into their day, we're doing them a disservice if we jump into that stuff and we don't really assess for their understanding.
0: Absolutely. And I like to do this at the end of my subjective, once I've really concluded everything and say to them, what do you know about X condition? They'll let me know and I'll build off of it. And my goal here is to give them an overview of what pelvic PT could do and say, so if you're coming in for urine leakage, here's what we need to know about why you're leaking, depending on the type, because it might be behavioral, it might be more physical. And once we know that, we can address it with different types of treatments. And usually they're like, okay, so what next? And so now I know that I have a person who's ready for the next thing, right? Okay, so we need to do an exam. Yeah, let's do an exam. And then we could talk about how that looks rather than telling them the next thing I'm gonna do is now an exam and then at the end of this, where for 50 minutes, I've just been asking you to do things, I am now going to also tell you what it is that you need to do. It's, that does not sound like a good time to me. Even if you're super nice and friendly and asking me all sorts of stuff, I think the transition from subjective to exam is embedded into us as physical therapists. We forget how jarring it might be to people who are not used To medical providers or find the whole thing awkward. Like, you can't just talk to me for 20 minutes, tell me to stand up and start checking all this different stuff, even though you told me about what a pelvis is. That doesn't mean anything to me in the grand scheme of my constipation or my pelvic pain unless you're able to tie that all together and give me a a 10,000 foot view. I will say before I go any further that the biggest caveat to all this is you're not trying to push people all the way through the behavior change model. The goal is not just to activate them each time and get them further and further along. And that is something I have to remind myself of often. The goal is to understand where they are at and meet them in that space. And hopefully that will take you to the next step. Spoiler alert, not always. Sometimes you don't get to preparation and action and maintenance with everybody, and that's okay. You don't know where you're supposed to be at on their journey. So it's okay for them not to make it all the way through the model or to have a relapse.
1: And it's powerful for you as the provider to know that because then you're not going to be beating yourself up or banging your head against a wall with somebody who's not ready to implement what you're asking them to implement. It's a great way for us to prevent burnout too, I think. Should we move on to the next stage of the
0: behavior change model? Sure. The next stage is contemplation, where this person is now starting to connect the dots. They start to see that there might be a link between their actions and their condition They're starting to understand that they may have some level of efficacy in this. I think efficacy and behavior change go hand in hand here. In this stage, they're not quite preparing for change, but they're starting to have moments of, so you're telling me that the amount of coffee I drink might be affecting how often I pee. Or they'll say something like, okay, so exercises might help strengthen my pelvic floor and I might not leak as much. They're having these little aha moments that they're expressing to you. And I think that's a great sign that they're in the contemplation stage where they're just starting to connect the dots. So at this point, when someone's in contemplation, We want to discuss what the changes are and what the options are for intervention. Not because I want them to immediately pick it, but rather to help them think of what might be next around the corner. Yes, you know that you have urine leakage and it's urge related. So certain things that you do might be contributing to this. Here are those things here is what's helped other people in the past. Providing that different buffet of options allows
1: the patient to choose something that you may not necessarily have directed them to do, but something that they're more interested in that maybe works better for their life and helps you to start from a place where they feel excited and curious versus you just telling them, do this thing.
0: So, Sammy, you want to throw us off into preparation? Definitely. Preparation
1: is the stage where people are ready to take action. It's defined as people who are ready to take action within the next 30 days. But when it comes from a clinical perspective, you're going to hear things that sound like, okay, so I know that my pelvic floor is weak. I know that pelvic floor exercises could help this. How do I do those? They're looking for specifics. So they want to know How do I do the thing that you're telling me is going to help me? And listening for that kind of language, looking for the specifics, those are the clients that come to you and you can tell they're going to do their exercises because they're saying, okay, so you're telling me I need to do this many clamshells. How many times per day? How often should I do them? How many repetitions? They're invested. They're engaged. They're part of the process now in a way that the patient who's in pre-contemplation isn't. The person in pre-contemplation is going to go, okay, I'll do the clamshells, and then they'll come back and not have done
0: them. But the person in preparation is getting ready to do that change. Absolutely. They're going to break out their notepad. They're going to say, hey, can you send me those exercises? I want to be able to look at the video or look at the sheet of paper. They are looking to implement, and they want to know how to implement And I think the key with these people is to get out of their way. (laughs) It's like, this is not the time to now start giving them the overview of here's how pelvic PT might help. They need to know, here's exactly how to do it. All I've got to do is listen to them and answer their question. If they ask me how many clamshells to do, I don't need to explain to them that clamshells are for strength versus stretching. They want to know the number. And I think I used to mix this up and people would ask me a directive question and I would give them all this background info. But if they're in preparation, it's probably not that important. Maybe they already know it. Maybe they don't care. Answer their question. The next phase is action. They are doing the thing. They come back and they've told you I have to my fiber intake. I'm practicing my dilators. I'm doing insert any number of interventions possible, but they are making the change. So this person, first off, is like always the fun one. We always think, oh my God, it's so great. They're doing the thing. I think part of the reason it feels that way is because we don't have to do as much work when someone's in action we get to support them and help clear obstacles or help them troubleshoot or help them progress. They're usually the ones that come in and say, okay, I've done that. These feel easy. What's the next thing? Or you mentioned this. How do we do that? So when they come in, since they're already in action, they have momentum and they're actively engaged. They're saying, what do we do next? And I think as therapists, that's the space that feels so good. It's so relieving to get someone on your calendar, on your schedule who is in the action phase and just to say, yeah, you're doing great. Here's the next thing we could try. Yeah. I don't know if there's more to say. I think these were always the people that I used to just call compliant. And so that's why they're easy to work with. And it's more nuanced. It's that they're engaged, it's that they're motivated, it's that they know they have the self-efficacy, they're continuing to make the change, and they are an equal partner in what we're doing now, rather than me trying to tell them, here's what you have to do, and trying to convince them that this is something that should matter. Where I was approaching these types of patients
1: a year ago was from an expectation that this was how everyone would be. You expect as a new grad that every single person you meet is either going to be in preparation, they're ready to go, they just need to know the thing to do, or they're going to be in action, like, okay, you told them the thing to do and they're doing it. And when that doesn't match up, when you get that person who's not in those stages, who is not ready to take on what you're telling them to do, there's this dissonance that you have as a provider where you think they're doing something wrong or I'm doing something wrong or something's off and they're non-compliant. The reason it's so fun to have those people is because it matches up with what we know how to do, what we were trained how to do, what's easy for us to do because that's entirely what matches up with the system that we created. Our system doesn't account for the contemplation people.
0: Mm -hmm. Or the relapse. (laughs) There's a lot of shame. No, I would almost say that some of the foundation for higher I approached patients was pretty shame-based. Not that I was trying to shame them, but it was under this mode of you should be doing better, right? Like you should be doing your exercises three to seven days a week and you should be making these changes. And if you're not, you should be. This approach through the transtheoretical model instead says... Help me to understand where you're at. What is it that you don't have right now, whether it's a resource or an understanding? And how do I factor that into your care? The other thing that stands out to me is people can be in different phases and levels depending on the different interventions you're asking them. And I think that's where the nuances really help too. the person who does their PT exercises, but like absolutely will not change their diet. And of course, they're a colorectal patient and you're like, oh my God, how are you ever going to poop better if you're not getting enough fiber, eating enough, whatever. And understand that you will probably need to figure out what phase they're in for that change. And be able to meet them at that stage while not getting in the way of this other behavior that they've got going on. So it could happen infinitely, I think. Every time you're discussing a new aspect of PT, whether it's considering the mental health component or making a lifestyle change or implementing a new exercise program, people will be all different stages and they can come back and have a little relapse and be at a totally different stage again, where they may have forgotten all about the interventions you did. And so they're right back into contemplation. Or many of my patients, if they drop off and come back, will come back in preparation. Like, hey, I kind of left off maybe at contemplation. I wasn't really doing the thing you asked. But something has changed and now I know I need to make a change. I'm ready to commit. Let's do it and we'll pick back up. If we can meet them where they're at, it leaves more of an open door for those people who might need time away. There might be more pressing things going on in their life and they feel comfortable with us returning. Whereas if I approach you as shame the whole time, I don't want to go back to the person that I feel like I'm constantly disappointing. It's just, I'll do it, but never in a way that is really sustainable.
1: Isn't shame the way we've operated too? I've had so many different clinical instructors and people over the years suggest that I, you know, oh, create a, a chart that they have to check off every time they do their exercises or watch them do a video of their exercises at home. Am I giving them homework like they're a child? Am I patronizing them? Am I shaming them into doing the thing that I want them to do? How does that create somebody who feels empowered to solve their problem and maintain that change over a longer period of time without you having to hover over somebody's shoulder like a parent? It's those people who also come in and they tell you, Oh, well, I, I just really need you to motivate me to do my exercises. Or I always fall off the wagon when I'm not coming to PT. And you have to ask the question, is this truly important to you right now? And what's getting in your way? And try to understand truly versus
0: just telling them, no, you need to do it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's tough when we see those people because in a way they're telling us they want to change But their actions are really incongruent Mm -hmm. with that. This is probably the hardest crowd. They keep showing up to PT, but they keep not really doing the thing. (laughs) And so it's this weird limbo of, okay, this time we got it. And they come back and, and it doesn't go through again. And I would say that is somebody who is stuck in a shame spiral as a fundamental way of approaching their own health. And unfortunately, that is really hard to untangle. We can probably not untangle that for people, I would imagine, unless you have a psych degree. So when I see those people, I I wanna send them a lot of love, a lot of light. I wanna hold space for them, but also create some boundaries around, hey, right now, You're not following through, more PT is not the answer. If we've done six sessions or four sessions and we're having the same conversation over and over again, maybe we take a break and and you come back to it. That's a hard line to walk. When we look at all of these
1: different stages of behavior change, when we can start to truly listen for the words and the phrases that people say that indicate where they are we can start to meet people where they're at and start to provide interventions that are realistic for someone in whatever stage that they're in. We can start to provide some education that's matched to their stage and possibly move people from stage to stage. But the ultimate goal isn't necessarily, again, like Monica said earlier, to push people into the next stage. The goal of this intervention is to accept the patients for where they're at and also accept that it's not our role to force them through this process because taking on that burden is going to be a recipe for burnout. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.